Okay, friends. It's good to see you. Good to be back. Yeah. It's a little tricky with donuts. You're used to like talking with donuts in your hand. We've been trained as Christians to have the fellowship hour over donuts. And now we're having the class over donuts. Uh, hey, it's going to be back. I've been gone the last two weeks uh, taking some R&R. And Ben has been leading the class the last two weeks. And I've been listening. And it sounds like it's gone well. So what we're going to do today is, I was hoping uh, all the kids would be in here. Here comes Deacon. But I want to ask the kids, uh, so Chanel and Sydney, looks like today, um, and maybe Deacon, to recap the last three. Oh, Dylan, there you are. You just look so big. I just. Um, um, wait. Oh, okay. All right. Um, <laughs> I just had a Kairos. Uh, but let me open us in prayer. And then we'll jump into today. Father God, we love you. We thank you for the grace that is today, that this day is fresh off the shelf of heaven. Never before been lived, never again will be either. So we receive this day as grace. We lay hold of this time together as a gift. Give us grateful, expectant hearts for your spirit and your kingdom to be made at home in us and among us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This is the fourth class of our seven-week series, and we've been talking about these axiomatic statements that ground our spirituality and our theology at the table, and they're taken from the life of Jesus and from the Gospels and from the New Testament witness. So, axiom number one which one of the under 18-year-olds wants to tell us what axiom number one is and give us like a one-sentence explanation? Sydney, you want to go for it? Yes. Can you give us a one-sentence? How do you understand that? Anybody want to help Sydney out? How would you word an explanation of that? (laughs) 
Anybody? Well, Anybody want to help her out? So the goal, of, the goal of uh, the goal of Christian life is not um, about right behavior. It's not about um, it's not about um, yeah. It's, it's about it's about love. It's about divine fellowship, and divine fellowship is yes. Love. Great. There's lots of other goals that are sub-Christian goals uh, of the religious life. And, um, and basically the idea here is that um, the goal of, of maybe certitude, of being certain of things, or being morally pure, uh, that those actually come to us through love. We don't get love through the thing. <laughs> that's, that's the tricky part. It's hard to critique something without demonizing in our culture. Yeah. It's hard to say yes and. It's hard to say yes, but this is insufficient. Uh, because we live in such a polarizing black and white kind of world. Alright, axiom number two. Dylan, what was the second one? Remember? Um, God is always present in that work. Yes. You want to give us a one-sentence explanation for how you understand that? Anybody? How do you understand that? Yeah, that's it. Uh, there's no uh, uh, divider between the, uh, the place where God is and the place where we are. Yes. Um, and we don't have to ask God to show up. He's already there. He's been working there with us before we even thought about Yes. So we talked about the difference between having a secular worldview and a sacramental or a sacred worldview. And for the better part of the last 500 years, uh, Christian thought and Christian theology has capitulated to secularism. We, we've, we've assumed the assumptions of secularism and tried to do theology inside that, rather than rigorously held on to and sort of um, faithfully uh, held out this, this imagination of we don't live where God's somewhere else and we're here. We live in a one-story universe is a metaphor that we use. All right. Third axiom. Deacon, what was last week? God is just like Jesus. How do you understand that? Yeah, yeah. So Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. So if we want to know who God is, we look at Jesus. Joel, hi. Hi. Uh, I like to think of it as the holy binary. 
you, you are free to think of it like that. <laughs> can, you, uh, can you give us what you mean by that in, in that, a few words? In that we can understand the truth and his grace in action uh, by at the same time holding his perfect justice and perfect mercy at the same time. Okay. And so for you, that helps us understand who God is. Yes. yes. Yeah. Good. Good. So these are the three uh, axioms we've dealt with in the last few weeks. Today, uh, these are, just to say something about these, these, these don't necessarily um, move in some kind of linear fashion. They sort of all hold together. So we're naming seven aspects of one reality rather than seven different pieces. Sort of discrete, separate pieces. So there's a, there's some overlap here that you'll see today. But the axiom today is that um, this God who is love, who's calling us into love, who's always present at work, and who's just like Jesus, he is ruthless about meeting us <coughs> in reality. The way we say this is God is so real. God is so real, he most fully meets us right where we really are. God is so real, he most fully meets us right where we really are. A few quotes. This is from uh, Michael Ramsey, who, uh, whom Ben quoted last week. You are with God, not by achieving certain devotional exercises in his presence, but by daring to be your own self as you reach towards him. You are with God, not by achieving certain devotional exercises, in his presence, but by daring to be your own self as you reach towards him. Karl Rahner says, But we have to say of the God whom we profess in Christ that he is exactly where we are, and only there is he to be found. And one more by Francois de la Rochefoucauld. How was that, Karl? <laughs> This is my favorite. Uh, Francois de la Rochefoucauld says, Almost all our faults are more pardonable than the methods we think up to hide them. (laughs) (laughs) Almost all of our faults are more pardonable than the methods we think up to hide them. So, that saying, adding the I think what he's saying, yeah, he's saying that. He's, I, I take him to be uh, saying as well that we compound exponentially yeah. 
the wrong when we don't reckon with it and own it and name it. Yes. So, so if lying, lying is bad, okay. But if I lie about lying, <laughs> then I've got a, like a, uh, you know, a sin turducken. You know what I mean? <laughs> I got like a lie inside of a lie and they sort of exponentially compound each other. Yeah. And so there's this, I mean, we, I mean, we come by this honestly though. We, we have, um, I think we have a tradition that demotivates us to be honest and real about where we are. There's, I think there's just human reasons for that. And then there's Christian or spiritual reasons for that. Uh, tell me about, so if this is true, that God is so real, he most fully meets us where we really are. Tell me about, when I ask you, how have you experienced discipleship or education in your Christian life? Tell me what comes to mind for you. What do you think of? Memorized Bible words. Okay. What else? Just, just name them. Um, education in my Christian life seems different than discipleship. Uh, just because, I don't know. But education is like, you know, hey, let's find out the Greek root of this word or the first century context that this came out of. And you're like, wow, that was really cool. Yeah, yeah, okay. Knowledge is power. So, okay, knowledge is power. Yeah. That's a way to describe the sort of like... Awesome. Mentoring relationships. Like learning cool facts. Yeah. Okay. Mentoring relationships. So, um... Mentors. Uh, behavior accountability. <laughs> accountability groups. Can I get a witness to that? <laughs> 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 when I take, anytime we talk about this, the guys are like, oh, accountability. <laughs> <laughs> and some women are like, oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> Thank you. 
Yeah, my, my experience is very similar to this. When I first became a Christian in college, I joined this accountability group uh, of guys who were leading this student ministry that I came to Christ through. And it was, it was like uh, 24 guys. It was ridiculously big. Um, and that, that did some good work in my life because I had no idea what it meant to be a Christian. People were confessing sins. And I was like, really? That's, that's not right? Okay. Oh boy. <laughs> like, like every week, I was kind of like, oh, I thought I, I thought I had a pretty good week coming in here. Um, and, then, and then I think uh, the, the pinnacle for me, and these are kind of in the same uh, category in my head, was sort of getting into a relationship with somebody who was smarter and better than me, who could do some of the mentoring things, but really what I wanted for them was I wanted them to explain the Bible to me, and I wanted them to get into my life and tell me how to fix it. And that was like one-on-one free in the local church, but then I uh, paid $35,000 to have that done to me in seminary. (laughs) So seminary was kind of like the supercharged version of that, but with professionals and experts. I want to just point out, then, that most of our discipleship efforts, this is the tool we're going to learn today. Um, Yeah, this is the tool we're going to learn today. Most of our discipleship efforts focus on two things. They focus on words, like the the things I'm using right now, (laughs) and works. On um, information and action. Right? On doctrine and deeds. Right? On, on uh, the mind and morals. I can do this all day, you guys. <laughs> Cognition <laughs> and conduct. <laughs> Boom! Oh, man. And I think that most discipleship is in touch with the fact that um, we've got, there's a correlation between these two things, that what we know and what we do are related somehow. But there's this distinct impression that I've, I've personally experienced and I hear from other people that there is some kind of breakdown. You know, Jesus called people whose words and works didn't line up. He had a word for them, remember? Hypocrites. And if you want to know what really cranked Jesus up, just do a word search in your strongest concordance. <laughs> on the word hypocrite and see what Jesus had to say about it. He really had a lot. It just, it just cracked him. And so we have strategies, I would say, to try to get our words, what we know, and our works, what we do, to be in line. What are some of the strategies you've experienced? 
accountability groups. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So social pressure. Social pressure. Yeah, okay, so you've experienced that the practice of gratitude helps you become more aligned. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Okay, disciplines, right? So, um, like spiritual disciplines? That's better, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, birds, like, the idea that if your words aren't matching with your words, and you have to, like, get into birds of the words. Yes. <laughs> yeah. a lot of I think the way that it manifests in my life is a lot of personal pressure that I put on myself. So it's like, yes. oh my god, I can't believe I'm doing this. I need to pray more. Yes. I need to read my Bible more. Yes. I need to maybe fast or something. Yes. Good. Yeah. So, so uh, you guys have mentioned the three <coughs> main strategies. Um, maybe, maybe two main, two or three strategies. The first, the, I think, the first way we try to overcome this gap is we do um, the reason why we're not living what we know is because we don't know enough. <laughs> so the first strategy to overcome this is more words. More. More words. So the, so the way that we, if we have this gap between like we, we know this but we do this, the way to solve it is to know this. Yeah. You guys experience that? Yes. The second is um, more words. <laughs> Which can look like accountability groups. Can look like if if you want to start living in line with what you know, you need better threats, bribes, consequences, like behavior sort of modification devices and strategies. Right? Fear life. Right. So so prescribe a list of behaviors and then attach social and personal consequences if you don't do them. <laughs> hey, you're right. Yeah, and then I, I think the I think the third thing that I've experienced is uh, what I'll just call the zap. And that is if I go to this weekend conference and I. I do all the things, then I'll get zapped and I'll stop being a jerk hole. Wow. Yeah. Right? Or if I go to this healing prayer minister, if I go to this deliverance person, or if I, if we do sing all the right songs and pray all the right prayers, God will show up and my marriage will go from a C minus to an A plus. Yes, I do. I just want to say that all of these work in the short term. Great. Right. Say more about that. I mean, like, uh, they're great. Like, it's sort of like diet. I'm not saying that it's not working here. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm using a personal analogy. Uh, <laughs> that uh, all of them, you know, often produce an increase in effort 
you know, let's see, short term. Yes. Yeah. I think this is why we like them so much, is because they can produce short term, short lived gains. Yes. Yes. And, yes. By, and by results, too, I mean they produce works. I'm not sure if that's like, you know. Okay, then, I, then I'll do this. Talking. I know it is. Again, as, as far as possible, uh, we are attempting to extract and name what we see Jesus doing so that we can inhabit and appropriate that today. And uh, one of the patterns and themes that um, repeats over and over in the Gospels is that a lot of the religious leaders, the people who engage Jesus, uh, wanted to talk about words and works. They wanted to talk about teaching and how do you understand this and behaviors. And the thing that we see Jesus do over and over and over again is he seldom, I can think of twice, he seldom wants to have that conversation. So the first kairos, I think that's important, has been important for me, is the things that we spend 99% of our time doing, Jesus spent about 2% of his time doing. That should challenge and confront a bit and have us reflect on our practices a bit. What are we missing that Jesus didn't miss is one of the questions. So what we see Jesus doing, friends, is he, he understands this gap, but, um, but he doesn't think that an exhaustive explanation of uh, soteriology is going to fix it. He, he also doesn't think soteriology? Yes. How do you say it? He also doesn't think 17 ways that an adulterous affair will ruin your life is the sermon that's going to fix it. <coughs> I've heard that sermon like two or three times oh. at the denominational events. Uh, not the one I'm currently in. It's not <laughs> <laughs> 17. 
<laughs> and, and you need like 75 minutes to do it. <laughs> but see, uh, we see Jesus having a uh, richer, deeper, um, more full understanding of the human person. That we aren't just brains on a stick. And that we aren't just about these external behaviors. So it's not just, it's not just mind trips and meritocracy. But rather, it's not just head and hands. I literally can do this all the time. <laughs> but there's, a, there's an element that's deeper and more core to who we are that Jesus is concerned about. And that is um, our wants. And so what we see is that most of the people who engage Jesus, they want to live what we call above the water line. So imagine this is like an iceberg. I just turned this part into an iceberg. And they, they want to talk about this 10%. You can see it. Uh, and Jesus has this routine practice of wanting to get people below the waterline. Helping people reckon with what they want. And he actually does it by saying, what do you want? <laughs> what are you seeking? Sometimes it's a little more oblique. Sometimes it's just a question. Sometimes he just questions their question. But his goal is to get people below the surface of their awareness down into, we could call this, uh, I'll use these as synonyms, even though they're not exactly all the same. So I'm describing a reality that's more complicated than one word can contain. He's getting down into their desires, their motivations. Their heart. I want to suggest this is sort of the undiscovered country of Christian formation. We have, we're scared to death of our desires. They feel unruly. It scares us. There's three main strategies in the Christian life for desires. One is, they're all bad. Yeah. Kill your heart. Then you know your heart is wicked above all else. You can't trust it. You can't trust your desires. So, so this is one of the attractions of a word-centered faith. If I can just live in rationality and cognition, I don't ever have to deal with what I want. That's a, that's a lie. I can live in my head. Right? Same strategy is with works. I can just focus on externals and exteriors, what I'm doing, my activating, achieving self, and it doesn't really matter what I want. What matters is what I do. So we deny or kill our desires. The second is, and this isn't, for many of us, we don't come out of this, some of us do, is there's sort of this 
reaction to that in certain streams of Christianity. And uh, the message there is um, go get what you want. Recruit God to do it. If you name it, you can claim it. Right? Dream big. Guarantee you God's dream bigger. God is waiting to unleash his blessing if you give me $1,000. So health and wealth, name it, claim it, has a different relationship to desire, right? So we either either kill desire in certain ways or or we say God wants to fulfill your desire. Um... I think both of these are sub-Christian. I contend, we contend, that that's not Jesus' relationship to others in their desire. So let me give one more uh, piece of teaching on this, and then I'll pull back for questions and we can have a conversation of that. We've talked about the practice of detect, detecting kairos, the practice that we are talking about today is associated with this move and that is dig Jesus' most powerful teaching tool discipleship tool wasn't answers and it wasn't explanations it was questions Jesus questioned people to help them get in touch with what they wanted, where where their heart was, what was motivating them, what they desired. And he, so he dug below the surface with what we call compassionate grace, curiosity, truth. Why do you call me good? Peter, why did you doubt? What are you seeking? We're going to preach today uh, on the juxtaposition between James and John and Bartimaeus in Mark 10. He asks both of them, what do you want? So we dig to get below the surface, not because once we dis- discover what we want, now, we're, now we've got it, and we can go for it, right? This is maybe where, um, this, is, this is maybe the insight and limitation of traditional coaching. Traditional coaching is meeting with people, and they help you name what you want. And then once you name what you want, they help you devise a strategy to go and get it. What Jesus does is he helps people name what they want, and then he has them, uh, then the opportunity, and the question then is, will you trust me with that? Will you trust me more than your desire? Will you trust me with your desire? Right? And that trust then is faithful participation in love. It leads to a work. It leads to getting out of boats and getting out of trees. <laughs> it leads to movement. 
not just internal assent. Which then in turn, actually, friends, decreases the gap between what we know and what we do. So if we, want, if we want to become less and less of a hypocrite, if we want to have more and more integrity and alignment in the kingdom, we don't need more pressure, but rather we need to reckon with reality where we really are, because that's where God is. God is so real. He's most fully needs where we really are. And that is, we live out of our, so in other words, this is gut. That's the Old Testament word. It's literally the kidneys. I think the Greek word is splachna. It's, it's, it's the place of desire and want that's in our bodies. Which is where 95% of our life comes from. Alright. Let's take, let's take a pause here. This is our word, works, wants tool. As we're talking about this, as we're sharing this, what, what are, what's striking you about this? Joel, yeah. So this this whole time, I've I've been sitting here thinking, okay, how are you going to, you've just reduced the gospel down to a a, a life coach framework, because I'm very familiar with life coaching frameworks and how it gets you to to think of how to to connect your your works with your your knowledge, with your one, reducing everything down to what you want, what you want, what you want, and getting the in the why question all the way back down. And so give what's give me more distinction like between mm. that and, and Christ. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean this is a pejorative caricature, I think, frame of what a life coaching is. But let's just let's just describe it as that for sake of distinction and clarity. But you're right, like what life coaching does is it helps you get in touch with what do you want. I don't really like my job right now, or my marriage is stale. Well, what do you want? Well, I want an exciting job and an exciting marriage. What would that look like? Well, it would look like X, Y, and Z. Okay, how do we, what's the strategy we can create to achieve what you want? And then I'm going to employ um, my knowledge and my, my inspirational, motivational skills to help you achieve that. That's life coaching. Uh, what we see Jesus do is something different. He helps excavate people's hearts... And then he doesn't say, let me help you figure out how to get that. He says, will you trust me with it? Will you trust me with what you want? And so then um, the difference is uh, we don't use Jesus to get what we want. We surrender to Jesus what we want and get the kingdom. Yeah, Ben. I think uh, the word, the, the practice that we introduced last week really helped us with this, where what, what are we aiming for? You guys remember the words from last week, those practices? Discerning bad news and declaring good news. So that, that's a big part of how it's distinct as well. That we're discerning lies that we believe that make us want what we want. And into that space, we allow Jesus to declare good news about the kingdom. And then we trust. That's, that's an expansion on what Matt's saying about how we trust God in the midst of that. The way that we trust him is we trust, oh, there's the reason, I don't trust the reason I want this. I trust Jesus to tell, to help me discern why I want this and to give me what I truly need through the gospel. Yeah. 
a quick Kairos I've been having. I've talked to Ben about this a bit. Is we got we recently got a dog, Jovi, and she's wonderful. But um, I, she's a new puppy, and she takes a lot of time and attention. And uh, I find myself being enraged at her in the morning, like really mad. And uh, all the stories I want to tell myself about why I'm mad is that uh, the the dog is inhibiting me from uh, being a Christian. <laughs> she consumes and takes my, my quiet time, my alone time. There's no space for me to do what I want to do. And I find that my, my anger with her is disproportionate to her behavior. She's being a puppy. She's basically like, play with me, play with me, play with me, feed me, feed me, feed me, I gotta pee. That's, that's her life. And, um, yeah, and so like if I'm life coaching that, I trust my want to be with God to be like holy, and I'm creating strategies to limit my dog's impact on what I want. Yeah? So I'm getting my son out of bed. And saying, go spend time with the dog so I can be a Christian. <laughs> or uh, I'm selling the dog. <laughs> right? Um, but what I've, what I've had to name and own is that the dog is, is violating or c- compromising or threatening this story that runs my life. That if I don't get what I want, and if my autonomy is compromised... I'm in danger. So what do I do with that story? Well, I usually just trust it because it runs as a it runs as the operating system, not as a program. Does that make sense? It's running as the foundation of my life and my bones, and I rarely can name it. It's not an app I click on, it's the operating system that the apps run on. Uh, Isaiah, I have no idea if I'm going to do this. We can talk later about your Um And so I, I've, I've had to hold that story before the Lord. Is this true? If my autonomy is compromised, am I, am I in danger? Is it true that if I don't get to spend 20 minutes in silence the way I want to, that I can't be a Christian. Is that true? God, do you have good news to me about the story about my anger? Do you have any, do you have any hope? Do you have any grace and truth for me in this? That's, that's the work. That's the work. Yeah, Spencer. I think another way of saying this is to, to distinguish again from life coaching is that like, if God is really present in it, puppy's behavior and this tension you're feeling. And in my rage. And your and in your anger, yeah, in your rage. Then this is not a, an opportunity to strike, come up with a better strategy, but it's an opportunity to meet God and where he's at work. Yes. And to be redeemed. And yes. Saved. Another way to be saved. Yes. So good Spencer. So one of the temptations for me is to think if I can figure this dog thing out, then I can meet with God. But rather this dog is bringing to the surface something God wants to get his hands on that, I, that I'm pretty good at keeping under wraps, under cover, that without the dog, who's a sin magnet, 
<laughs> it wouldn't be in my awareness. So actually, the, the, the actual contrast is true. Not if I figure this dog out, I can meet with God. But because of this dog, God can meet with me in places he couldn't otherwise. That's the transformational shift. That's God is so real, he most fully meets us where we really are. And what I want to do in that moment is to get over where I really am so I can meet with God in some sort of nice, safe place. Yes. Because I'm really good at that. Yeah, Isaiah. Um, this might be a slight shift, so feel free to wrap up something else. But I'm just, I've been sort of thinking, like, how, I wonder how you would connect this to a first axiom, which is, like, the goal of Christian life is divine nature. Yeah. Like, where do these two go? Great. So, um, to make things even more complicated, perhaps, because I think if you just look at this, if I look at the diagram on the board, I still think it's just, like, words want works now. Does that make sense? And if yeah. you're like, oh, we just added wants to our traditional, like, goal of the Christian life. Right, right. So it's important that one of the, um, one of the pitfalls in naming love as the goal of Christian life is that, is that the goal of Christian life becomes some mushy-gushy sentiment. Because that's what most of our imaginations for love are. It's some sort of warm, affectionate, sentimental feeling. And so what I want to suggest, you guys remember the Grace and Truth Matrix? Remember Grace and Truth we talked about? So I'm just going to draw one quadrant of the Grace and Truth Matrix here. And it's the love quadrant. This is Grace, remember? This is Truth. Um, this is how Jesus loves people. He integrates what they know and what they do and what they want. The Hebrew way to say this is he brings shalom <coughs> in people's lives. He brings in integrity, integration into disintegrated persons. And the way he does that is by practicing these things. So love is not sentimental and abstract. Love is rooted in practices of people. Yeah, Ben. Yeah, I, I, maybe this isn't what's in your question, Isaiah, but I, uh, I think it's important to point out that love, the other temptation about love, I think, is not that it's just sentimental, but that it is, because the other temptation with your, let's say your, your dog, Kyra. Yep. So you're tempted to believe this, like I have to, give, I have to solve the dog problem. The other temptation, this is the one I would be more prone to, in that moment would be to, to say, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this that this much anger is coming out of me towards this dog. That's really bad. Yes. That's not loving. I need to, like, figure this out. You know what I mean? Like, I need to be more loving towards my dog. And so, like, my strategy in that moment would be to think maybe that love is stuff this anger, like, get over yourself. You know, like, give myself a little mm -hmm. call out of the kidneys. And just say, like, you know, stop behaving badly and, like, love the dog and love your family. Be a good Christian, you know? Bootstrapping. Yeah, yeah. Which is why this is so important. I think, I think one of the key parts of this is that Jesus is declaring good news to people. He's not trying to modify their behavior. He's saying, like, hey, in the midst of this brokenness, 
There is a history. Yeah. Carla. Can I actually, can I actually dig a little deeper in that? Because sure. I'm still kind of having a hard time with this, too. Because my growing up was sort of like the words and the works. And yeah, there are the wants, but they're bad. Yes. So, or, or they're irrelevant to God. So I'm, in my Kairos, I'm learning that this is a truth that I believe that, like, your wants are actually like God's only crap about it. Like, yes. Like, yeah. You they know, might what? not be bad. Yeah, like, God's like, uh, like, like, oh God, I would like to live like a happy life and have this and this. God's like, I really want to be a martyr. So, <laughs> we'll do that later. We'll see if we can fit that in. But my plan is going to happen whether you like it or not. And being a good Christian is just like, well, I guess I don't need to be a, ha have a happy life and a good job in the way I want it. I guess I just resign myself to being a martyr. And, you know, like, I, I don't know. Just, it, I grew up around a lot of, like, well, you know, I never wanted to do this, but the Lord had other plans. And I just kind of have to, like, make peace with that yeah, and just yeah. deal with it. Yeah. So, you know, my first, you know, I was like, we're going back to dog analogy. It's just like, you know what? I really want to spend time in worship today just to meditate with God, but. Good, good. Yeah, so that's that strategy, which is kind of like Ben's a bit, which is basically like I'm doing something bad or wrong, and I have to stop doing the bad and wrong thing so I can do what God wants. Right? Is is skipping a step. So that's detecting the chaos and going straight to the do. But, but it's not based upon good news. There's nothing about Jesus in there. It's based upon feelings of guilt and shame. So this is the problem with, I think, the Christian spirituality that I was, that I was formed in. Was that the, the fuel of my Christian morality wasn't love. It was guilt and shame. And fear. And again, Isaiah, I think as you said, there's like short-term benefits to this. Like guilt and shame can get you to perform, but they won't transform. You can look better for a time, but you're actually living out of the stuff Jesus came to do.
because we all know we're going to get there. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's the mentality you get to play, right? That is not true. That is a, that is a complete falsehood and false way of your life. It's not true. It's just not true. Yeah, there's, and there's traditions, there's traditions where that's the expectation. Exactly. And what typically happens is, and I, can, I feel this energy when I'm in these environments, in those cultures, everybody's working overtime to impress you with how nice they are. how good they are. And so they're practiced saying the right things. But they never deal with reality. How are you? Better than I deserve? <laughs> <laughs> I'm better, I'm dead. <laughs> Actually, you've had an awful week. You're struggling with depression. No one knows about it because you can't say that. Because if you say that, yeah. you receive shame and guilt yeah. and marginalization. So we have Christian cultures that reinforce only bring your best impressions here. Because we can't handle and don't want who you really are. And you're, you're, that's what you're describing. And what it actually does is it just keeps us living up here and performing for each other. And then we're shocked when the priest or pastor has a scandal. We're shocked. Um, I wanted to, uh, specifically Carlos question, I wonder if it, it's helpful to, because I think I hear in your question the kill and fulfill temptation. Yeah. Right? It's like either this is bad and I just need to get over it because God doesn't care about this. He wants me to watch my dog. Right? Or like, no, I really need this and I need to, you know, attach myself to it. The, the verb, so kill and fulfill, that's call out hangouts. Does that make sense? Mm. Like I hang out with my desires, I just believe them and I think, okay, how do I get this? Or I call out my desires and say, oh, but I've just realized that I'm bad in this love quadrant, we discern our desires, and in our discerning of our desires, we aim them in the right direction. That's the, that's the process that's happening. So God does care about our desires, because we live from our desires inevitably. All of us do that. Like, to, to like lose all desire is to like stop being human, in a sense, right? We live from our desires. So God wants to speak good news to them so that they're aimed in the right direction. Because the deep needs that all of, the, all of us are chasing after these deep needs for like security and belonging and significance. And as we chase after those things, we devise strategies for getting them. And it's learning to realize that we've got strategies for getting these things. And the process is trusting that God wants these things for me. But I, I have to aim them in his direction, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and we can create strategies toward the wrong thing if we don't trust our desires to, to God. Yeah. Because if it's just if it's just the it's just the life coaching framework and I want that job. Totally. What I I'm, I'm missing the point. My, I'm conflating my my want with um, a work that I foresee as, as being yes. what's going to make me whole. Yes. I really want security and significance and community yes. and fellowship. Yes. So, so the underlying bad news in my life with the dog, and then Jeff, I saw your hand earlier, we'll come back to you, is uh, one of the stories that runs my life is I don't have enough. I can't remember the last time I woke up and thought, I got plenty of sleep, thank God. My first thought when I wake up is, oh gosh, I can't believe I'm awake already. So it's, it's a story that lives in me. I'm not volitionally choosing it. It just... 
right? But the life in the kingdom directly counters this story if I don't have enough. I mean, even those of us who haven't memorized tons of fire verses can think of two or three verses from Scripture that explicitly state this is a sub-Christian story. It's an anti-gospel story. And so what's happening with my dog is the same, it's that old, old story. I don't have enough. It's the same story that Eve capitulated to. And Adam. And so, yes, I, I have a choice. Do I trust my not-enoughness to Jesus in my anger with my dog? Or do I attach it to my 20 minutes of silence? I'm a good Christian. But do I attach it to 20 minutes of silence where I, I don't need to trust the Lord and I don't need to deal with my anger? And the difference between those two choices is life and death. Jeff? Um, yes, it feels like you're trying to fix me one disordered desire at a time. And as a human being, it seems like there's no limit to my wants. Mm -hmm. So as Jeff says, the, the job will never be finished, which I hear what you say. Mm -hmm. Because I may be focused on one want right now, but as soon as that's satisfied, then I find I have another one. And I have another one. Yeah. And I have another one. It seems really inefficient to deal with one at a time. Although I see the value of what's being said. So I want to ask, isn't there some vision for life that addresses my desires as a human being that begins to reorient me as a new man? or woman in Christ that begins to give me a new vision for life which creates a certain kind of desire for me that takes me out of this more or less takes me out of this circle yeah what is that vision hmm. and, and so when you share the kingdom I begin to think maybe this is a vision that Jesus was sowing that if I can get that vision it begins to reorder my desires in a way which are more in line with what God's intention for me as a as a human being really is. Yes. Does that does that make sense? Totally, yeah. I mean, there's just so many ways to answer that question or respond to it. Um I'll just respond to it in a few ways, and then if someone else has thoughts, feel free to chime in. One is every Sunday we declare good news from the Gospels about a vision of the kingdom life. And every Sunday we have a chance to respond to that personally by submitting our, what we want, submitting our life, submitting our desires to the Lord, and then affirming it together. So um, this is one aspect of a, of a larger matrix of ways that we hold out the vision of the kingdom and call people in. Two is, uh, we sp in our DNA groups, we spend two and a half months holding out this global vision of what you're describing as we double-click on discern and double-click on de declare so that we get a global uh, vision of why the good news is so good, how Jesus is Lord, 
and how his cross and resurrection, ascension and Pentecost and his life and his incarnation, how it answers the problem that humans face. So I, I can't do that in a class. It takes two and a half months in our DNA groups. I can, I can add to that a little bit. In the same way, um, we're, we're never fully ready for the full revelation of, of God's kingdom come. And so that's why this axiom is so relevant, because God meets us in our reality. Yeah. So if we're if, if everything were two-dimensional and someone is way down here in their understanding of, of God's ultimate vision of reality, he's still going to meet us down right where we're at and give us what we need yeah. uh, if we entrust in him to take us to that next uh, next level of understanding. Yes. For whatever, for whatever that may be. Yes. Two more responses. Yes. The, the, uh, this could just been... Uh, I want to be clear about this. This isn't the way that I fix you, Jeff. Or anybody. This is the way that we tend to and gather around what God is doing in our lives. So God's in charge, not me or you. We start with what we can perceive, because what else are you going to start with? And then we meet God in that perception and hear good news there. So in, this is one of the most uncontrolling discipleship ways of discipleship I've ever been involved in. Some of you know me really well, some of you don't know me at all. But if you spend 20 minutes with me, I'm not at a loss of things I want to tell you. I got, I got lots of things that you need to know. But I'm not in charge of your growth. God is. Next week, we're going to talk about how God cares about it more than we do. All of it. So we're practicing tending to that. Um, and then I'll just say one more thing. I don't know how desire gets transformed other than starting in granular, particular, specific places. I, I, there's, I, I've spent a lot of time at 20,000 feet, a lot of time in generalities and abstractions. And I'll, I'll tell you... Um, my perception is I've benefited much more from dealing with my anger with my dog than reading Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics on anger. Hearing good news about my dog at 6.15 a.m. in the morning about my anger has benefited me transformationally much more. And what happens is once I listen and do this, I'm actually able to know more. I actually become smarter. This is Ephesians 3. This is Philippians 1. I actually, the eyes of my heart are enlightened. And then I'll just say, finally, like, if anybody could, if anybody could get somebody's desires fixed and zapped all at once, or deal with all the desire, it would have been Jesus. And, and if anybody could have done that, like, who wasn't Jesus, it'd be the person Jesus picked to lead the church, Peter. That isn't at all what we see happening in Peter's life. I mean, Jesus knew that Peter had deep ethnocentric biases against Gentiles. And he touched almost none of them. None of them. He commissioned him 
to feed the sheep without having dealt with it or addressed it. It took a vision on a rooftop and Paul checking him in front of the church to begin that process. And that was a decade later, 14 years later. Right? So what I see Jesus doing is observing this, noticing this, but tending to the grace that Peter has. So he waits for Peter to say, Jesus, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of a big deal, and all these other people are going to leave you, but I'm not. And Jesus is like, okay, I guess we're having a kairos. <laughs> Let me tell you where you really are, Peter. You don't understand where you really are. Let me share with you where you are. But, but, but here's the thing. Don't despair, because where you really are is going to surprise me, and when you've turned, feed you. So there's, there's this reality, there's some good news in And I, I don't know, I, that, that's, that's kind of, those are those responses I think of, Jeff, to your question. Yeah. I have one more. Um, I do think it is important to have that overall vision, though, because that's, I think, what gives you the resources to be able to, to hear good news, right, in the midst of your very individual kairos that's happening. So I, I'm hearing some of that as well. It actually is important. And that, that's why this process isn't, like, if you master this process, it doesn't mean you just stay home and now you're a Christian in your room. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that, it's not like a, 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 an internal thing. So the, part of the way that we get this overall vision of the kingdom is by, like, coming to church. You know what I mean? Like, we, we, Matt mentioned it earlier. Like, we listen to the proclamation of good news. We respond together. We're in community together. Because we need each other to kind of hear that, hear that vision as well. Yep. Um, and so there is, there is a, there's an importance to that. But uh, I would agree with Matt that it's, it's one of the more important shifts in my life over the past 15 years to learn how to meet God in the granularity of the actual thing that I'm struggling with. And here, a particular word of news for me. Just really quick, if I can steal Mallory's analogy that she's used over the years, is I found, like Mallory has said, we have trunks of bad news a lot of time in branches and little twigs that are more like specific things happening, but they kind of can connect to bad news before. Mm. Right? So, like, as we go through our lives and we nourish the trunk, like the overall, start nourishing the other branches too that will grow, but then when bad things come up, go back to like the trunk of the bad things. Yes, yeah, just to, yeah, just to affirm what you're saying, dude, yes, as I've been going through DNA and this process for the last year and a half, that's one thing I consistently noticing is that there, all, all of the, all of these kairos that I have, they're connected to some greater bad news
and then maybe we can chat about um, Just real quick, the practices in our liturgy that this is attached to, silence. We're silent so we can come, become present to where we are. You have freedom in that silence. If you just need to tell God, I don't want to be here, that's better than pretending like you do. <laughs> that's what this means. That you can say, God, I don't want to worship. I'm really tired and I'm hungry. There's more of you available to God confessing that than for you to, to turn the on button on the Christian machine and get ready for worship. Um, the confession and absolution. Naming, naming what's wrong with us. Our, our response to the sermon is another chance for us to reckon with reality. So there are all ways that we try to practice this proposition. Um, all right. That's it for today. Uh, next week we'll do our next axiom, but for now let's, uh, let's prepare ourselves for the Let's figure out your framework map.